What's going on, people, people? This is Christian Ishkumar, and I'm a producer for the show you're tuning into, From a People Perspective. This is a podcast about fascinating people, how they got to where they are, and where they're going, all from the lens of HR, recruitment, and operations. This show is hosted by Martin Hawk. Before getting started with today's episode, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. Thanks to Wealth Simple for Work, providing group RRSP and benefit programs for employers to offer, Spring Law, providing virtual support for your smallest and largest employment law issues, Humi, a beautiful and easy to use HRIS platform, and the Leadership Agency, providing award-winning recruitment for startups using innovative approaches. We've got a great episode ahead of us and hope you enjoy. All right, today we have Regina Gerbeau, uh, and she is a tactical operations-driven CEO coach. Uh, and if you want to listen and browse at the same time, you can find her online at regina.super.site. Um, so from what your LinkedIn profile says, uh, you began your professional career as a musical entrepreneur, you pivoted into development and then somehow landed in the world of executive coaching. So first off, super stoked to have you here today and, and thank you so much. Thanks. It's really good to be here, Martin. Just to kind of loosen things up, uh, I do have some icebreakers. So first off, let's just say you're in an attic or you're, in, you're, you're looking through your storage um, and you find a dusty box of CDs. What can't you throw out? A dusty box of CDs, my goodness. Um, or like an MP3 player that like still powers up or something like that. I realized I just aged myself pretty intensely there, so. No, no. I mean, I, I think the, the CD analogy, or if you remember VCDs from back then, if you were playing them on your TV, um, resonate deeply. <laughs> so I think <laughs> I have also just dated myself as well. Um, cool, cool. This is going to sound this is going to sound so funny, but the one CD I think I could never throw away because it's so nostalgic to me was a sampler CD that I got from Borders back when the bookstore was still around. And I remember okay. my mom paid a penny for this CD and it was just a sampler of five different tracks and they were all classical music. But um I think the reason I could never throw the CD away, not because I'm a pack rat, um, but because I think the CD represents so much about me. It t touches on my background as a classical musician mm. by training. It touches on my love for books and how, you know, Borders was basically my babysitter growing up. My mom would drop me off there and I would just read vor voraciously. Um, and I just remember listening to this track over and over and over again. And that's what really prompted my love for Bach and Chopin and, and so on. Um, and I think it just, it, it helped me feel like I was connected to music and to art and to culture from a really early age. So, um, and if you know anything about, you know, classical music, a lot of it is so structured and the way you learn and the way you practice and the way you perform, all of it is a process. So I think in a lot of ways, my classical music background 
And this representation of this CD, of the sampler CD for a penny from Borders, <laughs> uh, touches into my background as an operator. Um, it helped me understand structure and process from a really early age. It helped me understand discipline because um, I don't know how many people know this, but classical musicians are expected to practice anywhere from four to eight hours every day. And so that was a big part of my life growing up. So I would never throw away that CD. I actually mm. think we still have it at my childhood home. That's amazing. Um, I would, that's, uh, that's, and so they were classical songs, right? Okay. That's right. There was, um, there was a pianist. It was Long Long. And then there was Hilary Hahn who played violin and there were opera singers. And so it was a mixture of classical mm. music. So different, not just classical music, the genre, but also the different eras and the different historical periods. So Baroque, classical, romantic, modern, impressionist. Um, and so it it is a very nostalgic, fond memory for me um, that's, that's and awesome. something that I will cherish forever. <laughs> yeah, we we share similar, like definitely not at the level of of like a concert pianist, but I I spend about five or six years learning to play piano and like at a level where it was like, yeah, you don't get to go outside and hang out with your friends and play at the baseball diamond. It was like spend three or four hours, you know, practicing your piano kind of thing. And there's like an exhausting part of it and there's an enjoyable part of it. And I'm just piecing together right now in my brain sort of like, oh. Maybe that's why I have an appreciation for like operations and process and systems. And like, you've obviously figured it out, you see that. And, and so that's, that's kind of really cool. Um, I, and, and I kind of wanted to kind of like, no, let's start, let's start there. So, um, in terms of, you know, your background, like I said, on, on LinkedIn, um, you, you create this, um, entrepreneurial, uh, business that is related to music. And if that's the right place to start, we can start there. But if, if you're like, actually, no, let's, let's start somewhere else. I'm, I'm happy to, but I, I kind of want to just do a, a cruise through your career and then wind up on, on where we're at with, with where you're at now. Sure. Um, such a great question. Uh, we could start at the music uh, stage, but I actually think there's relevant information that comes even before that, um, starting from when I was around 14 or 15. Um, I, for without going into too much personal detail, I started working very early. Um, I come from a pretty uh, tough household and ended up leaving home when I was 16. And so a lot of my background um, and my passion and my love for music really came from these circumstances. And when I left my home, the only thing I was really focused on at that time was getting through life. And what that meant was having to figure out how I was going to eat, how, where I was going to live, how I was going to go to school. And so the first job I actually ever really had was selling jewelry. Um, I lived in San Francisco and there was a little small jewelry kiosk at the Westfield uh, in the downtown San Francisco. And there was a really amazing guy there who had operated this kiosk uh, for jewelry that he got and imported from Senegal and China. And I got my first job making money under the table as a 15 or 16 year old. Um, 
and f realize the power of sales and connecting with people at that point. Um, but coming from this background, I think I really held on to my love and passion for music because I felt like it was the only thing that would allow me to express a lot of deep emotions that I was carrying and that felt very heavy, like heavy burdens on my shoulder growing up. So when I had this knowledge of, you know, music being such an evocative, communicative form, I also learned simultaneously the power of sales and connecting to people. And I saw that there was something there. So from then on, I held a series of various sales jobs, right? I, uh, I ended up uh, selling and promoting nightclub tickets when I was, you know, 16 or 17 for 18 and up clubs. And when I turned <laughs> 18, I promoted for 20, 21 and up clubs and realized I was um, uh, able to, to make enough money to survive during that time when I didn't have a home uh, and was bouncing from friend to friend's house or sometimes uh, actually sleeping in the Westfield in San Francisco. And during this entire time, the only thing I really had was music. And, and so when I finally picked up my life and moved to Los Angeles with the intention of never going back home, I only had these two things. I had the skill of selling and I had this love and passion for music. And so I don't have a sexy entrepreneurship story of, oh, I woke up one day and decided I was <laughs> going to be a CEO. But Really, this um, start of my career came from a place of uh, necessity and love and passion for something. So I got a job. Um, I was actually working two jobs at the time. The first job was selling sunglasses on Hollywood Boulevard to tourists. Um, <laughs> and the second job was teaching piano. Um, and I realized pretty quickly that I... Uh, really loved teaching. I loved connecting with people in general, but um, connecting with children and their families was so important to me. And I think a big part of being an educator it, for me was giving these kids the opportunities that um, I wish I had. And in some ways, the, the same opportunities that teachers gave to me when I was younger. So I started teaching that way and then realized pretty quickly that um, I wanted to do this on my own because I was very particular about how I thought, you know, a, a, a school should be run and how to build a company. Um, I was very opinionated just based on all of my previous experiences working in sales. So when I was 19, um, I decided to quit that job and I started my own school just by, you know, um, getting a couple of students and starting out that way. So I was 19 in community college <laughs> and had just quit my job and I had three students and had no car. And if you live in Los Angeles, you understand how crazy it is yeah. to get around all of Los Angeles County on Metro. So I was taking a bus two and a half hours one way to, um, to, to go to school. And then I was taking the bus to all of my other students and that's when I realized, oh, my gosh, my background in sales, my organization and my love for music and my love for teaching can be the start of something. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, going from this first prototype of taking the bus with a pencil box with stickers and highlighters in it to kids 
homes all the way to, you know, opening the school um, in my living room. I had converted my living room of my apartment uh, by that time into a music school. I literally only had two couches and two pianos, and that was it. There was no room for anything else in my <laughs> living room and dining room. Um, it's a minimalist All the way to, room. you know, it, it was definitely a minimalist dining room. Um, all the way to, you know, um, opening an actual commercial space and scaling and hiring teachers and growing the school to hundreds of students um, who, who really loved music. That was always the main focus. That, that's where all of that started from. So... That's it's yeah. it's so cool that I guess there's that like there's that quote and I'm I don't know who it who it's from but it's be the change you want to see in the world and it's so cool that you identified whether intentionally or not that you wanted to bring all these things together like being able to do what you love being able to do what you're good at and and having that all come together so early on in, in life to kind of create this really interesting foundation. So, um, no, it's where, where does that lead you from there? Yeah. Well, I realize in hindsight now that I had discovered what it meant to bootstrap a company to profitability and to find product market fit mm. and then to grow. And I know that the the metrics are are different. Like the the scale is very different from a small to medium sized business to a venture backed startup. But the the principles and the fundamentals are by and large the same. You yeah. you have to build something that people want. You have to find a differentiator. You have to build your moat. And I realized, you know, over the course of the seven years that I spent building the music school, that I could apply this but to something bigger. And scale was really important to me. So, you know, I was, I can flash forward and I'm 25 and I had just gotten married and I decided for the first time after working all of these years that it was time for me to take a vacation, a sabbatical. <laughs> yeah. And so I decided I'm going to take three months off during the summer and not teach at all. And by that time, the school was a very well-oiled machine. I had brought in people and given them the autonomy and the training and the structure that they needed to run the school. So it was a sort of an experiment for me. One, can I step away from the school and can it continue to run? Because that's the definition of owning a business. Yeah. If you can't step away from your business, that means that you work for your business. You're, you're an employee for your own business. It doesn't mean you're an owner of a business. So I wanted to see, could I step away from it? Um, and two, could I... Um, explore something new during that time and get bored and get creative again yeah. to to see what else is out there. So I stepped away and my sabbatical lasted exactly two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and what I mean by that is I discovered the world of tech. So for a little bit of background, my my husband is a software engineer. And during the first week, oh my gosh, I was so bored already from being someone who worked three jobs, four jobs at the same time to put myself through college, all the way to just doing nothing. I had never known boredom quite like that before. And I thought it was going to vomit. I was <laughs> going to bar from being so uncomfortable being bored. So I got curious and went to see what my husband was doing. And I realized up until that point, I didn't really know what software engineers did. I just knew that they 
wrote the code that powered the Facebook and the Twitter and all the social media that I use. And so that's when it clicked for me. And I said, oh, my gosh, he was working at an, enter, uh, at an e-commerce mm -hmm. company at that time. I said, oh, my gosh, you mean to tell me you can write these lines of code <laughs> and after it's reviewed and you push it? Thousands, if not millions of people are using it. And he goes, oh, my gosh, you're weird. But yeah, yeah, that's what's. And I said, I want in on that. I want that. Because I, I did the math and I realized, like, at that time, I had these ideas of, life, uh, of turning my music school into, you know, a franchise and figuring out how to skill in. I was really into reading uh, the E-Myth series by Michael E. Gerber. Um, so I was thinking, oh, I'm going to find scale this way. And then I realized, you know, that was my first lessons that, lesson that uh, humans don't scale, right? Software does. Human, mm. Humans don't. Um, and that no matter how hard I tried, it was going to be really difficult to build to the kind of scale that I wanted to see and the kind of impact that I wanted to have. So when I saw the, the power of soft, I don't know what that is, but I, I need to get in on that. And so that was um, in the summer and Y Combinator was offering startup school at that time. So, you know, in 2018, I applied and got in and uh, said, well, crap, I need a company in order to go to YC startup school. Well, I'll just start a company then. And so um, I started a company for the wrong reasons. I started a company to be part of YC startup school <laughs> um, and dis decided to uh, work within... Um, the wedding vendor space and it was just because i had just gotten married and i was like oh this will just be a a fun project for me right i'll just figure out how to do r d i'll figure out how to find customers i'll figure out how to like wireframe and build prototypes i'll figure all of this out and so that became the start of a journey into my career in tech and during that time i decided Oh, you know, a month in, I said, this is so fun. And I'm staying up till 2, 3 a.m. Because I'm not because I am, you know, stressed, but because I'm just so excited for how much there is to learn. And YC Startup School really set me up with the foundation I needed to learn everything. And I was just, again, voraciously, I think, from my background as a classically trained musician, I was inhaling content and just reading everything I could and watching all the videos that I could and learning what product market fit was and and all of these concepts and realizing all of these concepts that I was learning in theory for startups I had seen in the music school already and I said oh that's what they call that okay so I made the decision I made the decision to leave the music school so I like I said I had set it up so that it would thrive without me being part of the process and you know i feel tremendous attachment and relationship with my with my former staff there so you know i had i i had tried to hire people that nobody else was looking at people that mm -hmm. you know didn't come from tier one schools or people that you know hadn't really had a background in teaching yet and so i I had trained them and basically seen them grow up professionally um, and they taught me so much too. So I ended up approaching them and saying, how do you feel about turning the school into a co-op and you guys run it and I just sell it to you guys? And it, they, they were amazed and excited and ready to take that on. So I ended up selling the school to them at the end of 2019. 
uh, that was also around the time that I decided, okay, like this project that I've been working on, I think has validated my desire to be part of this tech world. Mm. Uh, in order for me to be a great founder, I need to be technical because I learned very quickly the um, issue of being a non-technical founder, trying to communicate with other technical people. So I said, I need to learn the the what behind this strategy. I don't need to know how to do everything myself because there are already people that love coding much more than I do, but I need to be able to communicate with them uh, if I ever want to start a company. So I, cl I closed down that project. I sold my music school. I was unemployed again and decided to start learning how to code. And so I spent eight hours a day to 10 hours a day just coding. <laughs> and uh, eventually I got this um, sort of internship uh, role as a software engineer at a small startup in San Jose um, and realized quickly, oh, crap, like I, I went too far and I don't actually want a job as a software engineer. But I think that means I know enough about how to think technically um, to really dive in. And I found during that time that I really missed the operational components of of building a business because that was what I just had so much fun doing. I think it's what I would call my zone of genius. So I found this company called OnDeck and saw that they were hiring an operations intern and thought to myself, well, I, I'm i 27 now. Do I really want to go back to being, <laughs> being an intern amongst college students? I said, I don't care. I have no ego. I'll apply as an intern and then I'll stick my foot in the door and not say no, like no until <laughs> until they give me a guess. So um, I did that and started working at On Deck. Um, and then six weeks in, they said, we really want to hire you full time. <laughs> so um, that's how I got my start there. Um, do you want me to continue talking yeah. about On Deck and making that quick? I mean, I, I imagine it would be difficult to make On Deck quick, but I'd be curious to know. If, <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to know what... Uh, what your biggest takeaways from that experience was. Yeah. From from my time at On Deck or yeah, from yeah. all of the things that I just <laughs> I no <laughs> from from On Deck specifically. Yeah. Like context why I mean probably better for me, like for for those of the folks that don't know what on deck is, which feels kind of weird given the audience, but for anyone that doesn't, like what is what is on deck and and you know, kind of what did you walk away from on deck with in terms of tools, I suppose? Sure. Well, when I started at on deck, on deck was the place where top, top, top yeah, I can't English today. <laughs> on deck was the place where top talent went to go find out what's next. And what that meant was they were going to either go and become founders themselves, or they were going to go and join early stage companies, or they were going to go and angel invest because they had just had successful exits. In any case, it attracted this amazing pool of top talent all across the world. And when I joined, it was already in the middle of the pandemic. So everything was remote. And I was so drawn and fascinated by this idea of a world-class community where no matter where you lived in the world, wherever you were connected to, wherever you grew up, no matter where you went to school, you could be a part of this community um, if you you know, um, were looking to start something new and look for someone who was going to be the first person that said yes to you. So during my time at OnDeck, I think the biggest takeaways were really 
diving head in on how a startup ran. And when I started there, I was a very early employee. Um, I was like 23 or something like that. And I watched it go from 23. Uh, that was like, I don't know how many people there were there. Maybe, maybe there were two fellowships and this was October or September or something. All the way to scaling to 150 employees by December. Yeah. And so going from 20 employees to 100 uh, or 150, I don't remember the exact number, that's like over 5x uh, company growth. And it was really exciting to be a part of that and see the momentum and like just understand what it took to scale. So um, like I mentioned earlier, six weeks in, um, Brandon Telesnik, who was the VP of operations at that time, said, hey, um, we need someone to launch all of these fellowships. And I said, what do you mean we're launching all these fellowships? And he said, well, uh, we currently have OnDeck Founders Fellowship. We have uh, OnDeck Writers Fellowship. And I think they were in the process of relaunching OnDeck Angels Fellowship. And he said, for 2021, um, we want to launch 20 to 40 fellowships <laughs> by the end of the year. And I said, a whole, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. I said, holy fuck, are you kidding me? Um, and how are we going to do that? And he said, well, that's what we're trying to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and the, 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 the interesting part of this is I was probably one of the few operations people that had had significant managerial experience because I was coming in as uh, someone that had previously been a founder, somebody who ran a very healthy org and a very healthy team. So he said, could you go and launch all these fellowships? There was no playbook. There was no blueprint. There was nothing. There was no. just, we have these ideas on the fellowships that we want to launch. Can you go do it? And I said, okay. And, and he said, great, we're going to start launching January. And I was like, it's it's November right now. What do you mean we're going to launch January? Wow. So I was given this task of launching all of these fellowships and basically building a playbook for how to launch all the fellowships in, in two months. And I said, OK, um, we we need a playbook because we're going to have to replicate this many times. We need to give resourcing and um understanding and and sort of like a checklist of sorts to all of the program directors so they know what they have to do to make their fellowships a success. And then we need to hire a lot of operations people, like one operations person per fellowship. And if you want 40 fellowships, there has to be minimum of one person who's going to help run all of these things, right? So in a way, I was already, without without realizing it, I was starting to understand the relationship between a CEO and a chief of staff because the program director, in a lot of ways, was the CEO of their fellowship and the operations person was the chief of staff, the right-hand person that yeah. would help make all these things happen. So for the first quarter of 2021, I think we launched 15 fellowships. Yeah. And that meant we were launching more than one every weekend and i was you know working around the clock to make all of these fellowships happen i was uh training and hiring and deploying and writing playbooks and doing all of these things at the same time so i mean the learning experience that i had at on dark was just so invaluable to my understanding of how startups worked and 
how that lent itself so nicely to the next stages of my career as a chief of staff and then a COO and then an executive coach. So yeah, lots and lots to take away from that experience for sure. Nice, nice. Um, I'm in hearing you describe just the number and the volume and understanding only vaguely like how much effort and work goes into that. Like 40 is just bananas. Like I can't even, I can't. <laughs> and, and to do it in a few months is, is wild. So, I mean, I've heard nothing but great things from all of the, the folks that have gone through the on deck fellowships. I've, there's obviously a people oriented people ops one. And it's, that's been popular. I know many members of my community have gone through that, that program. Uh, and, and so in, in doing all that, you get this crazy experience of sort of technically scaling 40 companies in three months. And to a certain extent, like each one has like, I'm sure there's unique aspects about each one. And there's definitely patterns that exist with, with all of them. Uh, but Going into that, um, what? How did you? How do you go from from on deck and in, into your next chapter? Yeah, so on deck really opened the door for my next chapter. There was a fellowship that I launched in January, at the end of January of 2021, called the On Deck Scale Fellowship, and the On Deck Scale Fellowship is um, a fellowship for companies that have hit a certain scale and are ready to pour fuel onto the fire and blow up their companies in the best way, right? So during that process, I remember I was talking to Ty Walrod, who is the program director of On Deck Scale, and I was helping him launch his program because he didn't have an ops person yet. And so I was acting as his ops person. And he said, you know, we were talking about the launch and part of the launch includes uh, swag packs. So if your audience has been part of On Deck Fellowships. We used to send out swag boxes, and I think they still do. Um, but Ty said, I, I would like to include specialty items in the swag box because this is a you know a high price point fellowship, and we have a lot of CEOs that have raised Series A, Series B, and like we should make it a really pu- premium curated box. And he said there's this book called The Great CEO Within that I think is basically the handbook for running a scaling startup. Could you please figure out how to get those boxes or get this book into those boxes? Mm. I said, okay. So I I searched it online and I said, okay, The Great CEO Within by Matt Mishari. Let's figure out how to get this book. I'm going to figure out that uh, who, who published this book and just order direct wholesale from the publisher because I'm ordering 150 copies of this book. I'm not going to go on Amazon to do yeah, that. Yeah. And no matter how hard I searched, I could not find who the publisher was. So I said, well, fuck it. I'm going to go and email Matt Mashari. Not understanding who Matt Mashari was. So I, I searched on the internet and found Matt's email in like five minutes. And I sent him this email. And I said, hi, my name is Regina. I run, uh, you know, do operations at OnDeck. I'd like 150 copies. <laughs> it's so good. He writes back. <laughs> and so never underestimate uh, never underestimate the power of the cold email. So he emails me five minutes later and he says, this is a publisher. This is how you order it. It's like, great. So then I went and I contacted the publisher and they, it was a self-published book. So they were saying some stuff like, no, no, you have to be the author themselves if you want to order the book or you have to publish a book with us in order to 
order from us. And it was just a big nightmare and a hassle. So I ended up writing back to Matt and sending him the uh, the chain of emails from um, the publishing site. And I said, hey, mm-hmm. this is what I'm getting. I'm so sorry to bother you. Do you have any ideas on how I can get these books? So then Matt just goes, I'm going to order the books for you. And so he went and he ordered the books and sent it over. And he said, um, it's my gift to you. And by the way, do you want me to come in and do a free session for like your on-deck scale founders? And by the way, do you want me to come and do a free session for the on-deck internal team? And anybody can show up. doesn't matter if they're the CEO or if they're executive leadership team or if they're like your individual contributor starting out at the company. As long as people show up, they've read the book and they want to learn, I'd be happy to do a session. So I said, oh my gosh, okay, like this is awesome. And that's how... Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I remember I we had a channel on Slack called Small Wins, um, and I posted this win in there. I said, I think this qualifies, you know, as a win. <laughs> and it's and somebody threaded in a response thing. I think this is more like a medium win, <laughs> not a small win. <laughs> and that was that was always really fun. So um, I I got in contact with Matt that way and just thought, okay, this is really cool that he went and, and did this, and I, you know. naivete sometimes is is uh, a great thing to have because I just emailed him without thinking twice about who he was or who he coached or any of these things Um, so a couple months later in May Matt said that he was looking for a chief of staff and I think signs come in 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 groups of three and I had been told by three different people in that week leading up to um, seeing that post that I would make a great chief of staff. And I said, okay, I don't know what a chief of staff is outside of me helping launch the on-deck chief of staff fellowship. So I should probably learn what this is and, and see where my career can go if that's, you know, uh, the next step for me. And um, I started looking into what a chief of staff was and I realized, oh my gosh, this is like basically sitting at the right hand of the CEO doing the CEO's responsibilities and basically getting a front row seat on how to run a company. And I had run a company before and it was profitable and it was great, but it was at a completely different scale. Mm-hmm. And so I said, what better place to go than, you know, becoming the chief of staff for the executive coach that coaches all the biggest companies in the world. And I threw my hat in the ring. I sent him another cold email and I guess it was a little warmer at that point. And I said, um, Hi, I don't know if you remember me. I ordered 150 copies of your book a couple months ago. And I think I would be a great chief of staff to you. And then he sends me an email 10 minutes later and says, call me. <laughs> so I I texted him thinking, I'm not going to call this guy. <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a millennial. We, we do text messages, not phone calls. I text him and I said, hi, Matt, this is Regina. He goes, hi, Regina, can you call me? <laughs> and I'm not getting out of this phone call. <laughs> So I call him and he goes, and we have our conversation. He says, why the hell would you want this crazy job? You're doing all of my shit work. You're, do, you're running my entire life. You're not just running, you know, Matt Mashari, the CEO of the company, but you're also managing all my properties, my brokerage accounts, my philanthropic organization, the foundation. Like, well, why would you want this? And I said, well, I think from the sound of the job description, you're looking for someone who's going to run through brick walls to get whatever needs to be done done and i can i can tell you that i didn't i didn't go to an ivy league and i didn't you know uh come from a fan company but i do know a thing or two about running through brick walls because you have to do that 
if you build a company, if you're starting at a company that hasn't, you know, raised a ton of money, um, you just have to be scrappy, resourceful and relentless. And I can be all those things. So a couple of weeks later, I got the job and that's how I transitioned into that role. And of course, you know, Matt Mashari works as an executive coach to some of the greatest companies out there. Um, Coinbase, Flex, Port, uh, Fair, Rippling, uh, the list goes on and on. So I had the privilege of sitting in on almost all of his coaching calls and seeing how these companies operated and having a front row seat at not only understanding how Matt helped them uh, handle the issues and the problems that were that they were facing but i also got to to sit in the chief of staff seat for the internal company so mashari method is basically building a company all-in-one software that helps people manage their meetings manage their action items and all these things so i realized that this was the best place for me to be as somebody who hopes to become a founder again one day and that's also how I got my start executive coaching because Matt said, well, I have this theory that anybody can do what I do, that it's not just a Matt Mashari secret sauce. So how about I teach you how to coach um, and we can see if you can basically be me. So I said, OK, um, I don't want to be Matt Mashari, but I want to be me. And I, I think that I want to take the parts of coaching that Matt does so well and I want to um, do something you know, with my own flavor. So I ended up coaching and starting to run these group classes with Matt. And then I started getting my own coaches. And that was really how I got started as an executive coach by being coached and taught by arguably one of the most sought after executive coaches out there today. Um, and it was around that time that, you know, Mashari Method as a company was scaling and growing. And we had companies that were really wanting our software and we didn't have you know uh someone running products uh day to day full time um and we didn't have anyone that was like basically managing all of the one-on-ones for the team and, and running everything so i took that role on and that's why i became coo earlier last year and during that time i basically learned how to sit in this executive seat of making all the things run and operate and figuring out how to hire the best talent, figuring out a strategy for the upcoming months, deciding how we were going to, you know, maintain great contact and relationships with the companies that were using our software, which were also people that were getting coaching from us. So that brings me to the present day where I decided that it was time for me to start my own thing and to start coaching on my own. Um, I felt ready at this point with all of the experience that I had um, been really lucky to have over the past couple of years to um, executive coach a little bit, um, but also to start ideating and thinking about what company I'm going to start next. So that brings us to present day. Nice, nice. Um, well, first off, like, thank you for sharing your story. I think it's important for people, anybody to kind of hear how folks go from, from one place to another. And, and yours is 
genuinely like an incredible journey and the pivots and the twists and the turns are really kind of cool. And I guess my question to you is looking from where you stand right now and, and back, like, was any of this expected or, you know, not? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. Oh, uh, when, you know, when I was 16, I was broken homeless. Yeah. Right. And I, we didn't get too much into it, but I was not in contact with my family. I had failed high school. I had a 0 0.83 GPA. So that's like three Fs, one D and two Cs. Um, and that's emblazoned in my memory because I think it's so important to remember where I come from and who I am. Mm. Um, all of these experiences, I think, made me who I am. Um, so I think that's really important. I also, you know, come from a home where there was a lot of abuse, where there was a lot of um, verbal and physical violence. And I think if I hadn't gone through all of these things that made me who I am today, I would likely be dead or, you know, on the streets somewhere still. So I feel very, very, very lucky that I have my life as it currently stands. Um, I did not know what tech was back then mm -hmm. outside of using Facebook a lot. Um, so there's no way I could have predicted that I was going to move into this role. Um, and I think upon reflection, every job that I've ever had has been so wonderful and great as a learning experience that I didn't even know they existed as jobs probably a couple months beforehand. So when I started executive coaching, you know, a year ago, I didn't know what that was. Mm. Um, when I became a chief of staff a couple months before that, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know that you could get a job in operations in tech because nobody tells non-tech people outside that there are plenty of roles, whether it's in growth or HR or sales or customer success. There's like so many different roles out there. And so I feel very lucky that upon discovering operations was a role that I was able to see that I belonged and that my skill set fit in mm. and I was able to take that leap. But I didn't know operations was a job until a couple months before that. I remember Googling and trying to figure out what is operations in tech. And then I did the same thing for chief of staff. What is a chief of staff in tech? <laughs> like I, I have always just searched for these roles. I there's no way, no, there's no way I could have known that uh, any of this was going to be part of my journey and my career. Well, I mean, first off, thank you for being being so candid. Uh, that that means a lot, and I appreciate it. And it definitely shows tremendous strength and confidence in in what you've achieved and accomplished so far. And and with your permission, uh, I would love to just share this podcast episode with individuals anytime they come to me with like, hey, I'm pivoting. And there's always this like mystery to like pivoting your career. And I think some folks like yourself have like uh, this approach that is just fuck it, I'm going to try it and we'll see what happens. And that doesn't come just naturally necessarily. But once you get into the habit of it, it becomes a muscle. And, and so most folks don't even know that this muscle exists, I guess. Right. So with your permission, I would like, it feels like this is the conversation a lot of people need to hear just to know they're like, oh, like 
what's what's stopping me from sending that email to a certain extent or hey i've never i love the theme that you've shared so far and i was i was going to ask you what's next and i still want to ask you what's next but like realistically what's next you probably haven't heard of yet if the theme and trend continues right so like how are you supposed to know what's next if if that's always the case right so that's right um I do know I want to be a founder again, so I've spent the holidays and a lot of time just uh, spending time with founders, uh, both former and current, ideating and coming up with ideas. And I never found thought that I was going to end up in the restaurant business, for example, but I'm very interested in exploring ideas in the food tech space right now. Nice. Um, and so that's another example of <laughs> this hard right turn where, uh, here's the big irony, Martin, um, my dad has owned a Vietnamese restaurant in the Bay Area for years and years and years. Um, and I grew up as a child of parents in the restaurant industry. Mm. And never once in my life did I think I was ever going to go into the same mm. uh, field and the, the same footsteps. And I think that the joke is on me now because here I am thinking, man, should I go down this road of like, virtual kitchens and food delivery and like uh you, you know because at the end of the day a, a really great friend of mine uh george sang for uh, he's the coo at dydx he he helped me make a realization discovery and that discovery is that the food delivery business is basically just operations and logistics on steroids it's not really <laughs> a food business it's it's operations and yeah. there's there's nothing that i crave more than solving really operationally complex problems and making people's lives better. And so I have been voraciously going down this path now as I uh, figure out what's next for me in uh, this uh, journey. And I don't know if I'm going to build in this space, but um, I sure love the learning that I'm getting from it right now. I can't imagine you doing something where you're not learning either right like from the no it's absolutely like... not. <laughs> <laughs> So um, with all your learnings, uh, I would love if if we could kind of extract some wisdom from you, you know, knowing the audience is mostly HR and recruitment folks. And I think there's an interesting vantage point that you have coming from a uh, CEO coach, uh, owner operator perspective where there's... There's oftentimes this scenario where you've got HR and people ops, let's call it just for, for the sake of brevity, but like you've got people ops working either in partnership with the executive or oftentimes there's this sort of like mismatch where there's this misunderstanding of what people ops is and the value that they bring to the table. And I think maybe one of the challenges that people ops people 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 uh feel sometimes is getting buy-in and like presenting their case to a ceo or an executive in a way that says like this is why what i'm presenting to you is important even though you've got six million other problems that probably feel more realistic so i would I'd be curious to get your perspective on on that specific. I know that's very direct and specific, but uh, it's the first thing that's coming to my mind. So, no, for sure. I I think fortunately for everybody in the people ops space, 
CEOs are starting to have a deeper understanding of just how important culture is in an organization, right? So traditionally, I think CEOs have always been enamored with the finding product market fit and growing like crazy. Um, And those are the two things that have really gotten a lot of limelight and are the two things that investors have always cared about because they were quantifiable metrics. Something like people and culture is qualifiable, not necessarily quantifiable from first glance. And I think as a result, investors maybe didn't place as much emphasis on that in the beginning, right? Uh, There's also a lot of different takes from lots of thought leaders on Twitter um, on on when culture should matter, right? Um, The nice thing that we're starting to see now is that CEOs are starting to understand unless my people are motivated, feeling like they're a part of a team and understanding the mission in front of them, I'm not going to have a company. And if I want my metrics to match, if I want to find product market fit and grow, I have to have people that understand my customers and their problems. I have to have people that give a shit to make things grow. And in order for that to be true, I need to have a culture that is very strong. And so there isn't one right way of doing culture, as you know, Mm. but I do think there has to be a CEO who is opinionated on what culture is. And culture is not the list of values that you put, you know, in plaster all over your office. It's it's the things that people do. Yeah. Right. Um, I think Ben Horowitz had a really great quote about that. Culture is not what what you write. It's what your people do. Yeah. So um, and I 100 percent agree with that. So when it comes to people ops folks making their case to CEOs, right, being able to find alignment in what the CEO cares about, what's keeping them up at night is just so important. And what is keeping the CEO up at night? Finding product market fit if they're pre-product market fit and growing like hell and running ahead of the competition if they're post-product market fit. These are the two things. So being able to say, hey, if you have a culture that is strong and that guides people in the right direction, not only is that going to be for the good of your 400-person org, let's say, but it's also going to help you get to your goals a lot faster because all of a sudden people will feel respected. People will feel like they care. People will give a shit and people feel motivated and they care about not only the people around them, them, but they care about the org as a whole. Um, And that in turn, it turns out, big surprise, that people that give a shit are going to spend the time (laughs) figuring out all of these solutions to the problems that you as a CEO are staying up at night, sweating and losing sleep over, right? So I think being able to position it from a CEO's perspective, like having that tactical empathy of saying the CEO cares about, you know, their investor relations and looking really good you know, in front of the people that are stakeholders in the company. And here's how culture fits into that, I think, is a is a really great play. I think it's also good to remember that culture is a long-term investment. It You either lose long-term or you win long-term, mm-hmm. right? And, and it's, 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 it, they're, they're extremes. You've seen companies that hit product fit and they have shit culture. And like the company just dies because they end up, you know, exploding and nobody cares about the company and they feel 
like there's a lot of internal politics that end up ruining a company. You also see companies that care about culture from the very beginning, and that has been what has led to long employee retention and ultimately a really successful, healthy company culture. So um, being able to show your CEO that culture is a long-term investment in the longevity of the company and its product with a plural product, because Mm -hmm. maybe you're only launching one product right now, but you might launch many more later. You can't launch those products and you can't find product market fit unless you have the people that are going to to care, right? Do you have to kind of help in, in the coaching that you've done and, and from what you've seen, do you have to connect that dot for a lot of CEOs? And is there like a common theme to like, this is the thing that turned the light bulb on so that the CEO valued culture and and bought into it? A good question. I don't feel like I have to spend a lot of time convincing CEOs that culture is important. And that's what I mean by this like growing trend that Mm -hmm. CEOs are starting to understand that they have nothing if they don't have people. Mm. Uh, The CEOs that don't get that are not going to have companies long term. Right. So um, I haven't had to do a lot of convincing I get a lot of CEOs that say culture is important. My company is falling apart. I have a ton of people issues and I know I have to fix it, but I don't know how to fix it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the best things that I think people, ops and HR can do or or just anyone in an organization, regardless of what department you work in, uh, one of the best things you can do is going to your manager or your manager's manager or like let's say it's the CEO directly if you're in a small enough company and being really proactive about it because the CEO has so many things to juggle and has so many things that are top of mind that the easier you make it for them to implement something the more likely it is that they will implement it and so a lot of times I get CEOs that are stressed about you know sense of urgency within the the team. And the thing is, the team cares about working in a really healthy environment, too. Right. And so the CEO is like, I really wish that, you know, I could build a healthy environment. But I also feel like I have so many other things to juggle. And I wish that, you know, somebody like I I wish I knew if people cared about this or not. So being able to be that person that goes up and says, hey, I know you care about this thing. Here's what I'm going to do to help you with it. Uh, What are your thoughts? Right. I have a proposal for you. I'd like to just implement this. And being able to establish this relationship of trust with the CEO so you can say, I have this company's best interests at heart. And so what I'm trying to do is like unroll this and uh, unroll this into the rest of the org so that you don't have to think about it. I mean, what a godsend that earns tremendous trust with the CEO for sure. Right. No, that's that's an awesome that's an awesome tip and, and approach. I think it's. To a certain degree, it kind of seems, I don't want to say obvious, but like, I think there's also that you mentioned like having the confidence just to go forward with an idea, whereas oftentimes people don't even present ideas just because they might be intimidated or whatever. And there's this like, I I guess I'm wondering, do you see a lot of times like they're actually just hungry and thirsty for people to come to them with proposals for ideas that. And it's just like, how do they open up that channel of communication or? Yeah, 
I think there's a difference between coming to a CEO with problems and no solution and going to a CEO with problems and having a proposed solution, right? The first one, if you go to the CEO with problems with no solution, is just complaining. You're not actually trying to solve the issue. But mm -hmm. if you go and you say, here's a problem, I think you recognize it, Here are the, here's the impact that it will have on the rest of the company if you don't solve it, and here is a proposed solution for how I think we can solve this problem together, um, but it takes you first agreeing that there's a problem here and then, you know, being okay with experimenting and seeing how to implement this. I think, you know, any CEO would be really lucky to have that. And what that actually does is it teaches people, regardless of what their level in the hierarchy is or whatever department they work on, to be autonomous and to almost think like founders, right? Because when you go and you have a problem and a solution, what is that? That's basically like starting a startup. When you go to an investor, the first thing you ever do when you present a pitch deck is say, here's this problem, here's why it needs to be solved, and here's the solution, right? And the solution is a hypothesis. This is, and we need this much money and this much resourcing to like solve this problem. So by exercising this muscle of surfacing something and like showing up with a potential solution, you're basically training and honing your skills as a potential founder or early teammate at the next unicorn startup that you go and work at. Um, one thing that's obviously, and this will kind of, we'll, we'll finish things off here uh, in terms of, I won't barrage you with any more questions because I do appreciate your time. I know we're going a bit long here, but um, I think the, Obviously, the economy is where it's at right now. A uh, lot of skepticism, a lot of uncertainty, all that fun stuff. Um, and then in terms of how companies have to operate, uh, you obviously operations tightening. Doing more with less is the, the name of the game at the moment because every company who's paying attention to the economy and what's going on is going to say, okay, well, we have less resources. We're going to, even, even if they're the revenue and the runway is, is fine and somehow you're exempt from you know, economic turbulence, so to speak, those companies, if they're smart, are probably still clamping down on their budgets just because, right? Just out of like, that's right. Like a, a mob mentality. So I guess, um, from your perspective of like, what are some of the smartest things people can do? to kind of tighten up on operations and uh, still provide value in, in a wild time like this? Yeah, um, I think you hit it on the nail with where the market is going right now. We're entering a bear market, a recession. A lot of people think we're already in it. Um, and so I think it's always, you know, I'm, I'm biased because I identify as an operator, but I think in general, it is so important to run operations very tightly and and it's even more important when you're in times of recession and where you know investors are starting to become more conservative and they want to see real growth and so all tight operations means is that you're allocating your resources very judiciously and towards the things that matter right and so what matters i think we can all agree that people matter and product matters, right? So, and, and product leads to growth and so on. So being able to cut out any unnecessary spending 
is really important. So that is something that anybody can do. You can just do an audit of your expenses, whether it's your finance department or you as a CEO with your chief of staff. Maybe that's a project that your chief of staff can handle. But I, I do think that being able to evaluate where you're spending your resources is very, is, is very important. Um, I think that there is the tendency to want to cut out benefits and things like that because it's seen as frivolous spending when in reality if we're really valuing people we want to think twice about whether we're going to cut those expenses so being able to come up with a framework of is this good for people is this good for product is this good for growth if you're at that stage where growth is appropriate those are the three questions you just have to ask yourself for pretty much every expenditure that you have um, and of course one of the biggest expenses when it comes to any company is payroll. And so unfortunately, when it comes to running tight operations, um, that also means running a very tight ship on who you choose to keep in your company. And that means a couple of different things. That means not only how much money you're spending on payroll, but that also means what this person is doing for the company culture and the rest of the org, right? Um, I think we've all had that experience where there's someone on the team who we think is maybe an average performer or they're okay or so-so, or maybe they're just bad, right? Um, but for whatever reason, the company continues to retain this person. And um, I think whenever we think about the consequences of retaining someone because we're afraid of letting them go, we're afraid of cutting uh, underperformers, uh, let alone cutting a whole bunch of underperformers and like, a reduction in force, right? Something a little bit bigger. I think that fear leads to really bad long-term decisions because these these people are working alongside your best performers and your best performers are saying, what the hell, man? Why do I have to continue working next to this person when I'm busting my ass day in and day out for this company and I give a shit and these people don't give a shit? So yeah. it's actually, it not only impacts you financially, but it impacts your company long-term. Yeah. So we can talk a little bit about, you know, what I think is a good way of doing a reduction in force, right? The first thing before a reduction in force even comes is identifying who the underperformers are. There are a couple of different ways you can do it. I think Netflix, you know, Reed Hastings had a really great idea in his book, No Rules Rules, with the keeper test, right? The keeper test basically says, if this person were to tell me that they were leaving for another job tomorrow... How hard would I fight to keep them? Mm -hmm. And if you're not at the keeper test, if you don't meet the keeper test, it's your manager's responsibility to tell you what you have to do differently in order for you to qualify as, I would fight so hard to keep Martin on my team. I would fly all the way, all the way to where he lives, get down on my knees and beg him to stay, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's like, that's, you know, the, the high end of the keeper test. And then the low end would be, okay, you can leave and there's almost a relief that this person is going. Yeah. So the keeper test is a really great framework that I like to use. Um, and then I think it also comes down to having weekly feedback between a manager and a direct report. And this is something that I think people ops and HR can help uh, the CEO implement, right? And this is something where you can like use sleep some or lattice or whatever, but it is the manager's responsibility to be communicating feedback weekly to their direct report and vice versa, where the direct report feels able to communicate feedback, both positive and critical to their managers. Um, 
And the idea behind that is if you don't know why you aren't doing well or why you're not performing at your manager's standard, you're not going to be able to improve. So it is unacceptable for a manager to not be giving their direct reports constant feedback, right? Yeah. Um, and and the feedback is not just you suck, right? The feedback is <laughs> here's something that you're struggling in and here is an action. This is so important. There has to be an action, a, a, tangi a tangible, actionable thing that you can tell your direct report or your manager to do that would make their performance better or you both brainstorm it together. Whatever it is, there has to be an action. So once you've done that a couple of times, you'll be able to see who is keeping up with feedback and who's not. Yeah. And then lastly, there's cultural fit, right? And again, like we said earlier, there's no one right way to do culture, but every company should have a culture. And if a person doesn't want to be there, it drags the rest of the team down. And it's, it's just not good for anyone. It's not good for the person who feels like they're suffering because they don't agree with the culture. And it's not good for the rest of the company where they're like, I'm happy being here, but I have to work next to this Debbie Downer every single day who says that this place sucks. Yeah. So, you know, being able to identify these people really helps with running tight operations and specifically how it relates to reduction in force, right? And with the cultural fit thing, I know that there can be some fear in people getting let go for, you know, um, not great reasons, like not legitimate reasons, and there's a fear of lawsuits and things like that. So something I've seen some companies do is they work with lawyers to make sure that they have sufficient objective metrics. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, if you're working in customer success, um, you have a line now that says like anyone who's below this line, we're letting go. Um, you can look at input activity. So how many, like the number of touch points uh, a person has with customers on a weekly basis, you can look at and evaluate NPS for that agent. You can see how much revenue they're upselling. These are really, really tangible, measurable metrics that you can say, okay, like this person is not meeting the bar, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so once you do that, you know, regardless of how big or small the company is, it is so important, so, so, so important whenever a CEO is doing layoffs or a reduction in force to do it with compassion. And what does that mean? What does it mean to do a reduction in force with compassion? It's by remembering that the people you're laying off are still human beings and they deserve to be treated with respect. And treating someone with respect means not doing a recording um, because that's just not compassionate. Like you as a CEO couldn't be bothered to like do this live, you know, with the people that you're letting go. Um, not being ambiguous in what they should be expecting like you can't be like today's your last day and yeah this was great like that's just terrible so yeah. outline exactly what's going to happen um don't be flimsy right you have to you know, say what it is and really remain firm in what it is because you're going to have people that are struggling to understand and to accept what's happening mm -hmm. to them and then most importantly um, it's really, really important for them to learn one-on-one -on -one that they're being let go. And I think that's probably the hardest thing for a CEO to implement, especially for large organizations, right? Um, but that's why you have managers. And so uh, this is where I think people, ops and HR can come in and really help. So being able to communicate all of this with the CEO and saying, don't do a recording, and then let's outline exactly what happens for every single person that leave, that, that we're letting go, um, guiding managers and training them on how to 
be compassionate but firm, and then communicating with managers and training them how to do 10-minute one-on-ones to like fully and peacefully mm-hmm. exit each person is important. And then if you want to go a step further, having the people in HR department cause the CEO to basically offer help if possible is really, it goes such a long way. And so what do I mean by offering help? I mean being able to have the CEO offer career advice to anybody that's been impacted, offering access to their network and and making personal introductions if Mm -hmm. this person wants to be introduced to someone, um, and being able to write a really awesome reference letter whenever this person needs it. These are the three things that a CEO can offer that go such a long way. Mm -hmm. And in reality, most people don't take the CEO up on it, right? But um, for the couple of people that do, it, it goes such a long way, and it's the gesture that matters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think any CEO um, who is really good and really cares about their people um, will be able to make the five minutes it takes to make an introduction, connect somebody, write a reference letter, whatever it is. Um, I think those are the fundamental basics on doing an, uh, a reduction in force compassionately. Yeah, no. And I mean, there's a ton of, I mean, I could double click on every point there, but um, the the one thing that comes to mind is that, and the, the biggest piece, I think, for, for me at least, is just knowing that like, it's not going through the process. And once the process is finished and you've had the most difficult part of the conversation and part of the task taken care of, it doesn't end there, right? There's still an That's experience right. and and something that, whether it's the CEO or the manager or the leaders, ideally, you know, a lot of this is kind of a moot point to a certain degree if you've intentionally hired great leaders, right? That doesn't always happen. You've got every company's going to have gaps here and there. It depends on where the company is. So most of the time you don't have this like elite team of perfect leaders. You've got a mixture of great leaders. You've got some okay leaders and you've got leaders that shouldn't be leaders to a certain extent at some point, ideally not. Yes. But, and, and so I think the most scary part for any executive is like, well, we're going to have to go do this thing. And I have to rely on all these different personas to do this thing that is really key and important. And it, and I think the easiest thing to, to to your point, just echoing off of everything is like a lot of the, what you talked about happens after the hard conversation and everybody kind of is like, oh, I'm glad I'm done with that difficult conversation. I can just move on and just forget about it. It's like, it's not the case. You actually have to suck up and, and spend some more time afterwards and dedicate the next day or the next week to just being of service. And that will go further than, than anything. Yeah. That's right. And and to your point of leaders that are okay slash just not good, a reduction in force is a great time to be able to also let those people go. I think it's uh, it's not best practice when I see companies that let go of a bunch of people, right? But none of them are execs or none of them are leaders. And, and what I mean by that is you mean to tell me that in an organization of 500 people, there was not a single exec or head of or VP that was underperforming that you could let go. Uh, And so to me, what that means is they're not properly evaluating, you know, the people that 
are a little bit higher up and they're only cutting people that are ICs or mid-level managers, which is not right, right? But a reduction in force, if you truly want to be doing this in the spirit of tight operations, it means you let go of anybody who is not performing to the company standards. And that means nobody is immune to that. Yeah, no. It's and and I appreciate you. I mean, in, it's again difficult conversations. It's it's not an easy thing to do, but that's also probably the most important conversations any any HR people persons is going to have. And um, so, really appreciate your 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 wisdom and, and advice on this. Um, also, yeah, no, for the whole conversation. I mean, we've covered so much today. <laughs> I'm so grateful that that you. You were down to have a chat. Um, what's, what's uh, like, is there anything you'd, you'd want to like share with the, the listeners in terms of like, you know, you know, you've got this food tech idea. <laughs> I don't know, but like what, uh, um, what, you know, what's the best way for folks to kind of like engage with your material and, and, and you in general? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you already listed my website earlier in the beginning. It's Regina, R-E-G-I-N-A dot super dot site. Um, that's going to have the link to uh, my executive coaching. It's also going to have the link to all of my tactical resources for any operator or exec or chief of staff. Um, they can also find me on LinkedIn. I love um, connecting with people and helping where I can. So they can uh, connect with me on LinkedIn at Regina Gerbeau, G-E-R-B-E-A-U-X, and they can just send me a note that uh, you, Martin, sent them my way. <laughs> I'd be really happy to connect. And then they can find me on Twitter, also at underscore RPGBX. So awesome. any of those ways. No. Well, thanks again. Thanks for being on, on the podcast today and uh, wishing you nothing but awesome success, regardless of you know what you're up to next. Thanks, Martin. Really appreciate it. Thanks. And that wraps up another episode of From a People Perspective. If you learned something today and want to join an amazing Slack community of talented HR, recruitment, and operations professionals, head on over to thepeoplepeoplegroup.com. On there, you can sign up to join the Slack community or get access to a number of incredible resources we've carefully curated on a bounty of relevant topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, policies and procedures, and even employment branding. Again, all this can be viewed at thepeoplepeoplegroup.com. It's completely free and pretty awesome. As well, you can find and follow us on both Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, find us at peoplepeoplegrp, and on Instagram at thepeoplepeoplegroup. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon.